You are listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is ABS in Mind, and I'm your host, Diana Satran. You all know my colleague, Al Yoon, by now, our RMBS expert. Hey, Al. Thanks for joining. Good morning. Al, you were here in our last episode too, a couple of weeks ago, where we ended on a somewhat um, optimistic note that, you know, some of the markets were beginning to stabilize and the securitization pipeline was slowly unfreezing. Would you say some of that has come true? Uh, it is, uh, for the most part, has uh, stabilized and, uh, you know, part of the thinking in the general ABS markets is because of uh, the Fed's liquidity programs and, and uh, one of which I know that uh, Dave will address here on the podcast, the TELF. Right, absolutely. And yes, we do have uh, our guest today is uh, Dave Goodson, Head of Securitized Products at Voya Investment Management. Hi, Dave. Hey, good morning. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining. Um, just to start off, uh, a quick general question. Can you tell us broadly which asset classes are you paying attention to in the securitized market these days and why? Oh boy, all of them. <laughs> I think there's so much going on in the market now. Things are so uncertain and evolving so rapidly. You can't take your eye off any number, any one of the balls that's in the air right now. There's And there's definitely a, a number of them. I, I'd say probably where we see the most hour-to-hour developments that impact, I know, our risk-taking would be in the CMBS market. Um, that space, as probably everybody, all your listeners are aware, got extremely dislocated in March, and that actually bled over even into early April. And we've things have started to thaw and, and come back, as I alluded to, overall in the market. And CMBS has not been unique in that respect, but I mean, we are still monitoring every remittance report that, that that comes in for information and for potential clues as to the longer-term outlook for the space. I'd say that's one place that's really got a lot of our resources focused there in particular. But that's that's that that, that does not do the other sectors in securitized credit justice. I'd say we've got pockets where we're watching very closely developments across ABS, uh, RMBS certainly, and. CLOs, I think all of the Securitized Credit Universes, um, you know, have their own set of challenges and their own set of uncertainties, and in some cases, their own set of positivities that we've got to, we can't lose sight of either. Um, so a lot going on, needless to say, Deanna. Right. And we will touch on a couple of those things separately too. But I did want to ask on a webinar you guys did end of March, I think you were talking about kind of how you how you expect the spreads to in the ABS markets to tighten back up once the new issue pipeline freezes. Because to you, you know, this widening spreads that were so swift at the peak of the pandemic were more of a liquidity issue rather than you know long term repricing issue. Could you go into more detail there and tell us if you'd seen this happened yet since you know the webinar was end of March I think since you made those predictions yeah it's uh, it's unfolded largely in line with that maybe one thing that would be a little bit different from what we the way we conveyed it was a lot of that spread tightening occurred even before we got just the very first new issue deals I think it was in that second week of April so just I think on the basis of new Fed programs coming into the market and just on the basis of a little bit of a reprieve from the crushing selling uh, volumes that we saw in the month of March, just on that basis, we're able to 
see some of those spread levels, which in retrospect looked, you know, so incredibly attractive, come back. But I would tell you the next legs in the retracement of spreads tighter across ABS asset classes, yeah, has been driven by new issue coming back. It's still not back to where we think ultimately it will settle back in in terms of an ongoing run rate of heavier new issuance. Again, it's still been rather light, but in sectors where we have seen uh, new issuance come back, it's yeah, again, it's helped us take that next level, that next leg tighter in terms of spreads. Okay, Dave, that's a good overview. Um, you had mentioned uh, the uh, Fed's uh, program, uh, liquidity program. I think uh, I think you're referring to the TALF. Mm -hmm. uh, could you go into that into a little bit more detail for us? Uh, I understand that there has been some developments this week, for instance. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we keep getting new information and installments, which are uh, always eagerly awaited and appreciated when they do arrive. First one was the just the initial announcement of the TALF. March 23rd, uh, that got updated on April 9th with, with some exciting additions to the eligible asset classes, namely secondary CNBS and static pool CLOs. And then uh, it's been a little bit of a, more of a, a gap since the most recent installment. And uh, with each day, it seemed like our, our fellow market participants got more eager, uh, again, with the with each day for, for additional information, additional direction on the on hopefully the operational go live date for the program. And we got some measure of satisfaction on that front earlier this week when the Fed released the uh, the FAQs uh, as they were uh, packaged as, uh, which had a lot of the additional detail that the market was anticipating, but not all of it, Al. Um, there definitely are mm -hmm. still some, there's some wood to chop, I think was one market participant characterized it in terms of what we need to know before the program formally gets up and running, but but also we did get additional information, and I know the market's uh, definitely been taking some time to work through those details and and figure out what the real implications are, us included. Okay, so but does this to say that you're not trading any differently right now uh, based on what you've just heard from the Fed on the TELF? I mean, in other words, there's still a yeah. lot to, to know before you, you know, you can sort of uh, place your bets on this type of thing. Uh, from, from a, yeah, I think that's right. From just a cash markets, non-TELF operational perspective, you know, so how do we read the tea leaves and what do we favor? What do we, what do we maybe want to not favor as, as, as much as we did before this announcement? I think that's, yeah, it's been hard to make those conclusions. Maybe one place that we were a little disappointed and with this recent round of uh, clarifications was we didn't get additional asset classes added. Um, we were uh, just given all the lobbying that's gone on directly to the Fed, places where we felt that the, the goals of the TALF were very much aligned with um, including additional asset classes, i.e. to help uh, open up the flow of credit more freely to consumers where we had anticipated perhaps some additional sectors getting added. And uh, on that basis, we were optimistic that maybe a sector like RMBS, not agency RMBS that is, or a sector like marketplace loans, those might might get afforded some uh, better status with the Fed and be included in a program like TELF, but ultimately they were not added at this juncture. So there might be okay. one area where, yeah. You might you might still see that in the future. I, I uh, We reported last week that uh, – 
the Redwood Trust CEO uh, expressed some renewed optimism in towards getting at least uh, prime jumbo resi assets into uh, the TALF eligibility. Um, and uh, coming from them, that meant something because uh, Redwood has often been consulted by uh, the folks in DC regarding residential credit before. So that's not dead, yeah. that, uh, that, that possibility. <laughs> um, I love your fighting spirit. I love it. <laughs> and I share it. I do share it. Um, Dave, just as, as marketplace, a... Sorry. Sorry, Dana. just to jump on that. I think in marketplace, I think that optimism has died down a little more than in RMBS uh, in terms of being included in TALF in the future. Would you agree there, Dave? I do, unfortunately. Um, I think that's the space that's probably got the tightest tie-in to the Fed's goals, though, which is why I think we retain some um, optimism, but I think one of the key challenges that they've faced being the Fed and none of those, or very few of, I should say, very few of those tranches, even at the senior level, have been able to garner the required AAA ratings from two rating agencies, which also was clarified, by the way, in this operational detail that came through. It's They, they actually narrowed the approved rating agencies to just the kind of what we call the big three, Fitch, Moody's, and S&P. Um, and that, I think that further complicates the story for marketplace loans, unfortunately. Makes sense. Sorry, I'll go on. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Okay. Uh, Dave, I wanted to take you back to uh, the CMBS market. I mean, you mentioned, uh, I mean, there's, uh, you know, uh, some secondary CMBS are, are going to be TALF eligible assets. Is that right? Correct. That's right. The last, the triple right. portion of deals. Yes, that's right. Okay. So, um, in generally in CMBS, I mean, I understand there's been a run for higher quality paper and, uh, uh, maybe for very obvious reasons, uh, you know, certain types of property, hotels, retail seem to be a, a third rail for investors right now. Um, can you give me your thoughts on, on that, you know, within CMBS, what, you guys are looking at in terms of buying and maybe what you're trying to lighten up on? Yeah, sure. I'll give you some uh, high level there, but feel free to, to ask for more details because as I mentioned, this is a place that's definitely consuming a lot of, uh, you know, of our, of our time and resource and thinking uh, because it's, it's still, it is opportunity rich, but a lot of that opportunity is opportunities on the back of the, the uncertainties and the risks that are out there. And you, na you nailed it with the, the, one of the key dimensions that you've got to think about it through. And that's, property type. Uh, hotels and retail, I think, are probably ground zero for the economic shutdown. Uh, every, all the listeners, I'm sure, can imagine, you know, the difficulties envisioning how those, the people who own these properties are, are surviving when, when the businesses are effectively shut down and have been the longest in our economy. Um, the, the restrictions on travel started the earliest, uh, which has obviously direct implications for hotels, and the restrictions for going out and non-essential um, uh, kind of shopping trips as the biggest direct implications for retail. And, and let's not forget retail heading into this was already in a, a, a transition stage with the move to a kind of a more omni-channel marketing driving the way consumers tended to, to consume. And so shop, uh, not shops necessarily, but uh, concepts and brands that hadn't adjusted as quickly to that, that requirement from consumers that already started to struggle. And this, this we think has accelerated that that uh, that that demise of some of those slower to move concepts, unfortunately, and it has okay, real but... tentacles and teeth, yeah, into, into CMBS. 
Okay, but are you looking to uh, pick up any opportunities, any, uh, um, I don't know if you want to call them distressed opportunities, but, uh, you know, things that are yeah. looking very cheap right now. And I know that mm -hmm. may be in part, uh, you know, connected to your broader economic forecast. Is it going to be a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery? God forbid an L, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, that uh, pick your letter. Um and, and no one probably feels perfect. Uh, um, and, and I think against that backdrop, you know, the market struggled to say, you know, really differentiate between CMBS bonds, especially the further you go down the capital structure. And I think that's ultimately where the best opportunities are. Um, so one place that has just been almost off limits, I think you, you, you use the term third rail, uh, has been retail. And for a lot of reasons, a lot of good reasons, but not all retail is dead. Um, we, as a society, remain pretty big consumers last time I checked. And I think the demand is going to prove to be somewhat pent up uh, from the consumer, you know, as economies start to reopen. And we're going to see that um, there are very viable properties that we're going to see pickup in volume and pickup in, in, in the amount of uh, attractions uh, that consumers will Force. So being able to uh, we'll differentiate between retail properties for value is, I think, a key part of our approach here. Um, I, I don't think the market's done a good job at all uh, appreciating um, that, not, again, not all retail is dead, and some properties actually will be in a position to thrive um, when, uh, when all is said and done. So that's, I think, a key place where we can add value for our clients um, on the I'd say a close second behind that would be uh, on the hotel side as well, where you know, we think some properties there, when you can differentiate, particularly uh, from a sponsor standpoint, uh, folks that have the wherewithal to manage the problematic periods like this from an expertise standpoint, but certainly also from a capital standpoint, that they can carry the property, carry the loan. Um, that's an area where we can add value assessing that dimension, again, that borrower strength and that borrower wherewithal. So those are probably two areas and places that otherwise have been ignored by the market or, or completely um, priced to just that absolute worst-case outcome, or perhaps that's not warranted. Uh, we can we can enjoy a little more medium-term value there. Okay, so you are trying to pick up some uh, cheaper opportunities there? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair way to characterize it, yeah. Okay. I wanted to just take you back for a second to the um, unsecured consumer marketplace lending space. I know, um, you know, we touched on that saying it's not included in TELF, um, but was wondering if you're spending any attention there um, still and, you know, if you have any expectations on the performance of credit there. Yeah, I think within the consumer part of ABS, which we are big fans of uh, as a platform, we see a lot of value across multiple types of consumer loans. That is probably the one that has the most challenges ahead of it. Uh, you mentioned one characteristic of the space, which the unsecured, unsecured piece is, uh, I think, a, a key factor in us characterizing it as challenged. So when you think about a consumer's balance sheet uh, up and down, what they're going to try and protect, what they're going to try and uh, keep access to, it's probably going to be some of the more secured asset classes like their auto loan, and it's going to leave the unsecured places a little more exposed uh, to a longer shutdown period, a longer period of income disruption. So it's got that just fundamental challenge ahead of it. Um, secondly, uh, 
I think this is that fact is not lost on the rating agencies, and they've been, from our perspective, very aggressive taking action or at least intended action via their negative watches and negative outlooks uh, on that space. So that's kept us a little bit more cautious for from from just wholesale adding more risk in the space. I think ultimately we do believe in the U.S. consumer. As I mentioned, we're big fans of the space overall. Uh, we think it's, uh, you know, a key part of the economy. And as such, policymakers are going to do what they can to support it. And that's what we've seen so far, uh, in particular with, uh, with the CARES Act. So I think in the long run, it's got good potential. Near term, though, the challenges um, are associated with the nature that it is unsecured and, to the rating agencies have been fairly aggressive in our estimation and their approach towards the space. It's going to keep us a little bit more cautious, definitely watching it closely for opportunities uh, as we get better clarity and, and uh, more time under our belt effectively for the economy to heal. That could be a place where there could be some some outsized opportunities to add value to our clients. But at this point, I think we're a little, I characterize this as a little more cautious. Makes sense. And uh, you said you're fans of the consumer ABS space overall. So aside from unsecured consumer, which uh, consumer sector are you paying attention to? Is it autos? That's a big one. And, and big, I mean, there's a lot of ways to play the auto space now. And we have been priced for a very bad outcome in the auto industry overall, which uh, I've picked up on definitely a few ways where that may prove to be a little bit exaggerated in the prices. And again, as I mentioned, it's a big space to begin with. And big spaces, you tend to be able to locate opportunities to generate some outperformance. So it is a place that's definitely got our focus. Um, a lot, again, a lot of different flavors and ways to, to, to play that, that view. But the place where I'd say I, I would more prefer to let your listeners know where we see value, and it is on an unsecured loan type, but it's got a twist to it that I think is important and differentiates it a little bit, and that is actually on student loans, which I think we'd all recognize is an issue in our society, and higher education definitely has its challenges ahead of it. But the refinance flavor of student loans where we've seen, I think, very effective approaches from various lenders in the space to actually refinance borrowers out of their government loans into a, a private market approach with improved servicing, lower rates, you know, a, a, something that takes into account actual creditworthiness, <laughs> their approach there, we've seen a, a lot of value generated in that bottom line. And um, it's a smaller part of the market, which ultimately I think has fostered a little bit better uh, income potential or spread earning potential. So that is a place in particular where we see good opportunity and ultimately think it's a, again, it's a product that has a real place in our society, replacing the way we finance our debts is that, is that market. Uh, so that's a place where we've definitely spent a lot of time focusing and continue to, to, to take risk there, taking into account the new economic backdrop circumstances that we're faced with at the moment. I'd, I'd highlight that for sure. Okay. Have you actually, uh, have you actually increased your allocation there? In, student loans? We, we, we've, we've increased our, uh, I guess I'd say our model portfolio for that part of the market, Al. It's been difficult, though, to, to add that supply um, in the absence of, you know, a, a meaningful amount of new issuance and a, a real slowdown in the secondary markets. It's been a little bit difficult to just kind of snap your fingers uh, and make that happen uh, in a market like this. And I think that's one reason why we're so um, – optimistic on TAUS prospects, hopefully will do its job. I think it's designed to do it and, and will deliver on it is to allowing more 
more liquidity in the space, more new issuance, and tend to, it, secondary volumes tend to follow a little bit of the new issuance machines. We expect the opportunities in that space to become a little more readily available in the next month or so. Okay, thank you. Um, and one area that we haven't touched on is uh, residential credit. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that uh, some Voya funds have been investors in uh, uh, the newer non-agency uh, bonds that, that have been sold uh, in the recent years. Um, what are your thoughts now that, uh, you know, we see widespread forbearances take mm -hmm. place, uh, rising unemployment, um, and, uh, you know, just great uncertainty as to what uh, delinquencies would bring in the future? Yeah, there's definitely more risk uh, than there was heading into this, no doubt about it. That's no shocking uh, revelation for anybody. You mentioned the key ones there, but I think there's also positives um, that we have not lost sight of uh, in the space, one of which, uh, which has accompanied the increased risk in the system, has been the move lower in rates. So we would expect the deleveraging forces, which were already in underway ahead of this with lower mortgage rates, to take another leg higher, actually. The prepay volumes that we've seen in March and April on the agency side uh, have been record-setting in some respects and by some measures. Um, significant amount of volume there, and if, to the extent that that translates over to the non-agency space, like in a sector like uh, non-QM or prime jumbo, um, and then on the agency side, at least with agency borrowers, but in a, in a private market context, CRT, that deleveraging pressure should remain fairly acute here uh, in coming months. Yes, the additional risks around forbearance, that's a huge one. And um, I know I started off the podcast talking about the, our focus in CMBS, and you know that's taking a lot of resource and time, but I would say assessing forbearance risk on the resi side is, is a close second. That is a big one. Um, and there's a big piece of news that came across the wires last night. Uh, I'd highlight for your listeners to, to check out um, a couple different, it came out a couple different places. FHFA was the key release I'd advise reading um, there's a new uh, policy around borrowers being, aff being afforded access to a, a payment deferral, uh, which is, I think, a, a much more borrower-friendly uh, way to approach them repaying the forbearance amounts as opposed to a, a more of a formal forbearance payment plan. I think that ultimately bodes well overall. There are risks with it, of course, like anything, but there are some positives that outweigh those, I believe, in my estimation. And and ultimately, that helps us, I think, with our assessment of the risks in RMBS and it make a, makes us feel even more comfortable with the opportunity there. So we are, we're, I would characterize this as risk-seeking on the non-agency RMBS side overall, Al. Okay, thanks. So in terms of a positive then, I mean, um, do you mean to say that, uh, you know, so borrowers, if you're in forbearance and you, you know, you miss um, – three months, four months, five months, six months of payments, you won't be uh, faced with that repayment in a lump sum or something like that? Yeah, it's very much like that. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily the reality even before we got this, by the way. Uh, I think that was maybe a servicing approach to, to try and mitigate the amount of forbearance that borrowers actually sought perhaps. Um, but regardless, this deferral plan, you're right, it, uh, it, it essentially would move those for born amounts to the back end of the of the the mortgage repayment uh, and make it a function more of a refinance potentially or a sale of the property when those will, those would become due which again is very borrower borrower friendly
Okay, thanks. And so in residential sure. credit, I mean, are you guys making any uh, changes to your portfolios, uh, broadly speaking, um, you know, because of whatever you are expecting in terms of uh, ultimate delinquency rates? Because of delinquency rates, no. Um, perhaps, though, because of the, I think that, you know, we're still seeing ripple effects from the March and April dislocations, all of the forced selling that occurred in those markets, it really reshaped the yield and spread landscape. And so we saw some trades come back into focus for us that had really moved out of focus because they just looked uh, too tight and unattractive. And one place that was the case was in the legacy part of the not in CRMBS universe. We actually saw some attractive opportunities reemerge there in, in a sector that we had, I wouldn't say entirely moved away from, but definitely de-emphasized in our portfolio. So that was one place um, that I'd say is, you know, that's, that's now, uh, again, kind of re-energized our, our risk appetite there. But it wasn't because of, you know, the delinquency outlook by any means. It was more a function of just our sense of relative value given the broad repricing that occurred. Other examples I could go into uh, deeper than that, but that's probably the, the, the most um, poignant one to, to point to is how, is how our positioning's kind of been reshaped there. Okay, sure. Yeah, we saw some big selling in the legacy non-agency stuff. Uh, Two Harbors, the mortgage REIT was, uh, you know, for the past several years had been sort of loading up on, you know, very discounted uh, legacy stuff in the 60s and and 70s and uh, anticipation it would uh, ultimately, you know, pay off at par. And then all of a sudden there's a liquidity problem and they dumped everything. So um, I guess Boya was there to sort of catch some of that stuff, right? <laughs> uh, we, we did our best. Absolutely. And I love, man, you're, you guys are both, you're very up to speed in the space. This, this has been a pleasure speaking with people that know exactly what's going on in the space. So well done. Yeah. Well chronicled right there, Al, in particular. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, we'll do it uh, many, many, many more times in the future than in that case. Um, well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully I, I earned a, earned a repeat visit. I would love that. <laughs> that would be great. Thank you, uh, Dave. We really appreciate uh, you covering so many topics uh, on this uh, podcast. It was very in insightful. Um, and thank you, Al and Christian, for making this happen. And hopefully we'll see you all next time. Okay. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon. Music